0: Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Ferguson. I'm Professor of Divinity and I'm very glad to welcome you to the start of the second week of Professor Bruno Latour's Gifford Lectures, Facing Gaia, A New Inquiry into Natural Religion. Tonight is the fourth in the series. Uh, We have a revised title which you have before you, The Anthropocene and the Destruction of the Image of the Globe. Please welcome again Professor Latour.
1: I'm surely not the only one in this room who waited with great anticipation during the sixth-first month of 2012 for the conclusion of the 34th International Geological Congress that was to be held in Brisbane during the summer. I have to confess that until recently I was not in the habit of following the work of this eminent academic body, even though their somewhat Nietzschean motto, Mante et Maleo, by thought and hammer, would have fitted fairly well my own profession. But if this year I did, it was because I, along the whole world, was waiting for the outcome of the International Commission on Stratigraphy. Or, to be more precise, on its subcommission on Quaternary Stratigraphy, presided over by Dr. Zalaziewicz from Leicester University. Would they officially declare that the Earth had entered a new epoch, the Anthropocene, or not? And if so, at which precise date? For the first time in geostory, humans were to be officially declared the most powerful force shaping the face of the Earth. It would come as no surprise to you that such a decision would have been counted as a true epochal change for the geostorians with whom, in those lectures, we are trying to get acquainted. Here's a quote from a report of a subcommission: The Anthropocene is currently being considered by the working group as a potential geological epoch. at the same hierarchical level as the Pleistocene and the Holocene epoch with the implication that it is within the quaternary period that, that the Holocene has terminated. A formal Anthropocene might be defined either with reference to a particular point within a strata section, colloquia- colloquially known as a golden spike, or by a designated time boundary. So far, so good. Unfortunately, I'd forgotten that geologists are used to take their time. Indeed, they usually deal with millions and billions of years. So completely indifferent to the pressure exerted by laymen like me, who eagerly needed to know if the news was official or not, they quietly stated in their conclusion that they had to delay their final vote for at least four more years. Their decision was anti a strange expression in our present timing. Of course, geologists need time to find enough telltale sign of a vastly enlarged role of the Anthropos, whose civilization is already paired by around 12 terawatts, and which is heading toward 100 terawatts if the rest of the world develops at the level of the US. A stunning figure if one considers that plate tectonic forces are said to develop no more than 40 terawatts of energy. And every subcommission had its own sudden change of scale. What is so depressing in reading the document of a subcommission on stratigraphy is that it runs through exactly the same items you would have read in any 20th century listing of all the glorious things that humans have done in mastering nature, except that today the glory is gone, and both the master and the slave, that is, human as well as nature, have been melted together and morphed into this strange new geological, I mean geostorical, forces. What would make the situation amusing if it were not so dramatic is the mix up of a time scale this working group has to deal with. Do you remember how at school we were asked to be very impressed by the slow pace of geological timelines? Well, today, the phrase geological time is now used for an event that has passed more quickly than the very existence of the Soviet Union, as if the distinction between history and geostory had suddenly vanished, the carbon and the nitrogen cycle taking on as much cosmic significance as the last glaciation of the Manhattan Project. Let the adept of stratigraphy take their time and wait patiently for 2016. Given the importance of what is at stake, We cannot blame them for demanding some time to adjust to this acceleration of time by falling back on the somewhat slower, senatorial pace of academic bureaucracy. What makes the Anthropocene a clearly detectable golden spike, way beyond the boundary of stratigraphy, is that it's the most decisive philosophical, religious, anthropological, and, as we shall see, political concept yet produced as an alternative to the very notion of modern and modernity. But what is even more extraordinary is that it's the brainchild of stern, earnest, and sun-tanned geologists, thank you very much, who, until recently, had been wholly unconcerned by the tools and detours of the humanity. No postmodern philosopher, no reflexive anthropologist, no liberal theologian, no political thinker, would have dared to weigh the influence of humans on the same historical scale as river floods the erosions or biochemistry. Just at the time when it became fashionable to speak of a post-human era, with the blasé mood of those who know the time of the human is passé, the anthropos is back, and back with a vengeance through the hard empirical work of those who used to be called natural scientists. What the various fields of humanity, with all their sophistication, could not detect, obsessed, as they were, with defending the human dimension against the unfair encroachment of science and the risks of excessive naturalization, the natural historian were left to ferret out. By giving an entirely new dimension to the notion of human dimension, it was they who devised the most radical term that would simultaneously put an end to anthropomorphism, as well, at least that's my claim, to older form of naturalism by suddenly foregrounding the human agent under another shape. Because of such a conceptual feat before going on, I think it's fair to respectfully bore to Paul Krudzen, the atmospheric scientist, and his colleagues, the geoscientists. They all deserve the motto, "Mente et Maleo, since it's thanks to the intelligence handling of a hammer that we have come to realize that all our most cherished value, when they were gently struck, rendered a rather hollow sound. Let me further introduce this second set of lecture by pointing out why I find so original in this concept of the Anthropocene and also use this occasion to review what we have achieved last week in preparation for the much harder task that lies ahead. That is the question of war and cosmopolitics, and maybe, if we manage to go that far, the question of peace that will be invented to encounter Gaia properly. The first advantage of living in the time of the Anthropocene is that it directs our attention to a much more than a reconciliation of nature and society at one larger system that would be unified in terms of either or the other. To operate such a radical reconciliation, we'd have to accept the great divide of a social and of a natural, the Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll of modern history. But the Anthropocene does not overcome that divide. It bypasses it entirely. Geostorical forces are no longer the same as geological forces. Wherever you deal with a natural phenomenon, you encounter the Anthropos, at least in the sublunary domains of ours. And whenever you tackle the human, you discover types of attachment that had been lodged before in the purview of nature. In following the nitrogen cycle, where would you situate the biography of Franz Haber? and where the chemistry of plant bacteria. In drawing the carbon cycle, who would be able to tell where Joseph Black entered and when he leaves this merry-go-round? Cycles such as those look much more like a Möbius strip that would require us to think through a rather puzzling form of continuity, provided you entirely redistribute what used to be called natural and what could be called social or symbolic. The divide between the natural and the social sciences has become moot. Neither nature nor society can enter the Anthropocene intact, waiting to be quietly reconciled. In the same movement, the Anthropocene brings the human back on stage and dissolves forever the idea that it is a unified agent of history. This is why, in what follows, I will use the word anthropos to designate what is no longer the human in nature, nor the human out of nature, but something else entirely, another animal, another beast, or more politely put, a new political body yet to emerge. Such is the main topic of this lecture series, to define the scale, scape, scope, and goal of these new people taken severally who have unwillingly become the new agents of geostory. Another advantage is that the concept of the Anthropocene underlined the strident urgency of a preparation we are busy making for facing Gaia. Only recently have the two related figures of Gaia and the Anthropocene been superimposed. If, as I said on Thursday, Gaia inflicts upon humans a narcissistic wound by bringing them back from an infinite universe to a tiny cosmos, it's only after entering the Anthropocene that humans have begun to really feel the pain. As long as they were human in nature, they could ignore Gaia's limit that lay far away in the background. Now that humans have become the anthropos of the Anthropocene, they bump into those new limits at every turn, banging into them with screams of surprise and disbelief. Even trying to deny that there exist limits at so all. What is even more infuriating for them is that humans are themselves responsible for having met those limits so quickly, in the space of a few generations, maybe two. Yes, incredibly enough, all that has happened in my own lifetime. This is a piece by Stephen. This is the, the footprint of human in 1900. This is. The footprint of humans in 1950, three years after I was born. This is the footprint now. Whereas Gaia could be taken as having a somewhat leisurely pace to the point of being considered as some sort of a homeostatic system, maintaining equilibrium of an immensely long geological time dimension, a feverish form of palsy falling catastrophically from tipping point to tipping point from one positive feedback to the next, in a rhythm that frightens climatologists even more with the publication of each new data set. So much so that in Love's own term, Gaia reveals itself as something that is at war and that is even ready to take its revenge. It seems to me that the real reason why we are assembled tonight for this series of exercise in political theology is because we are all, in a way, painfully aware that in order to confront this new urgency, there is literally nobody, because there is no way to unify the anthropos as a generic character to the point of burdening it with everything that will happen on this new global stage. If we learn anything last week, it is that such an actor is unified neither by nature, nature one, nor by religion, religion one. It makes no sense to talk about the anthropic origin of global climate warning. If by anthropic you mean something like the human race. Hundreds of different people will at once raise their voice and say that they feel no responsibility whatsoever for those deeds at a geological scale. And they will be right. Indian nations in the middle of the Amazonian forest have nothing to do with the anthropic origin of climate change, at least so long as politicians have not been distributing chainsaws at election time. Nor do the poor blokes in the slums of Mumbai, who can only dream of having a bigger carbon footprint than the black soot belching out of their makeshift oven. (coughs) Nor does the worker who is forced to drive long commutes because she has not been able to find an affordable house near the factory where she works. This is why the Anthropocene, in spite of its name, is not a fantastic extension of anthropomorphism, as if we could pride ourselves in having been transformed for good into some sort of flying red and blue Superman. Rather, it's the human as a unified agency, as one virtual political entity, as a universal concept that has to be broken down into many different people with contradictory interests opposing cosmos, and who are summoned under the auspices of warring entity. The Anthropos of the Anthropocene? It's Babel after the fall of a giant tower. And it's probably useless to claim that the scale of a threat is so great and the expansion so global that it will act mysteriously as a unifying magnet to turn all the scattered people of the Earth into one political actor. As we saw last week, Gaia is anything but unified and unifying. Don't count on any pre pre-ordered overarching feedback system to bring them back to order. It's totally impossible to appeal to the balance of nature, to the wisdom of Gaia, or even to its ancient, relatively stable history as a police force whenever politics has divided those scattered people too much. In the period of the Anthropocene, gone are all the dreams entertained by deep ecologists that humans can be cured of their political striving if only they could be convinced to turn their attention to nature. We have permanently entered a post-natural epoch. Ecological questions are not there to assemble stakeholders peacefully. They divide more surely than any issue of the past. They always have. If Gaia could speak, it would say like, Jesus, think not not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Or even more violently, as in the apocryph gospel of Thomas, I've cast fire upon the world. And look, I'm guarding it until it blazes. But what about science? Surely here, at least, we could find a unifying principle of last resort that would bring everybody into agreement. Let's all be scientists, and we will get our act together. Facts of all countries unite. This will never happen. It's prevented not only by the spurious controversy waged by climato-skeptics, climato-deniers, or climato-negationists, but also by the very oddity of all those disciplines that depend so much on a highly complex distribution of instrument, modeling, international agreement, bureaucracy, standardization, and institution, the machinery of which has never been presented in a positive light to public consciousness, what I have earlier called nature two, Climate scientists have been dragged into a post-epistemological situation that it is as surprising to them as it is to the general public. Thus, if there is neither unity in nature nor not in politics, it means that whatever universality we are looking for has to be composed. It is to render such a composition at least thinkable that last week I introduced the little scheme by which every collective will present itself to the others as a people summoned by an entity and make explicit the way it distributes agency. This is what I've proposed, if you remember, last week. A, specify what sort of people we are. B, state what is the entity or divinity that they hold as their supreme guarantee. And C, to identify the principle by which they distribute agency throughout the cosmos, of course. Conflict will ensue, but then also later, some chance of being able to negotiate peace settlements. It's precisely this peace condition that are not even going to be looked for as long as we believe that the world has already been unified once and for all. By nature, by society, or by God, it doesn't matter which. Let us start this potential work of assembly with an imaginary collective whose member would proudly present themselves to our other by saying, we pertain to the people of Gaia. That others are shocked at the introduction of a goddess into what should remain a strictly naturalist description can no longer embarrass us. With our translation table in hand, there is no longer any difficulty in granting a proper name to the entity under which of people is happy to be summoned. If anything, as I argued last Thursday, Gaia is much less a religious figure than nature. This is where the usual semiotic trick I use can be useful. Nature possessed the strange ability to be at once outside and inside. She had the fascinating ability to be mute and simultaneously to speak by herself for fact with the added benefit that you never knew when naturalists spoke who was doing the speaking. More surprisingly, she was organized by successive levels from atoms, molecule, living organism, ecosystem, and social system in a well-ordered procession that allowed those who invoke her to always know where they were and what provided the best foundation for what was to follow. This architectonic quality allowed her to dismiss at will a particular level in the name of a level just below it. Even more surprisingly, it allowed them to dictate what things in the world ought to be, while claiming them to dictate what things in the world are. In the vast repertoire of religious studies, it's hard to find a divinity whose authority has been less contested than the laws for which nature could force everything into obeying her. So if you now loyally compare the attribute with which nature and Gaia are endowed, I think it's much more secular to claim, I belong to Gaia, than I belong to nature. At least you know that the person who salute you with such an invocation belong to a specific people that is frankly assembled under the auspices of a personified entity whose property he or she can list. When you meet someone who is from Gaia, you may be confident that you are not going to be sold a totally implausible speaking mechanism, as well as an already built architectonic so well-ordered that it will tell you what you should do under the cover of what simply is. Freed from the fact value divide and extirpated from the stultifying architectonic of level, From A, as in atoms, to Z, as in zeitgeist, you may clearly state your goals, describe your cosmos, and tell, at last, your friends from your enemies." What are the other virtues we could grant the people of Gaia? I hope you understand that I'm drawing here completely imaginary people. Another great quality of such a people is that they may escape from the bifocal vision that we have recognized in the first two lectures. What is so strange in the people of nature is that their residence is totally implausible. They seem to hover in outer space, without having a body or even a mouth, at times completely fused with the thing they know, at other times detached as a spectator contemplating nature from the view from nowhere. But scientists cannot survive in such a vacuum, no more than astronauts without a space suit. So whenever they actually have to do something for a sudden change of repertoire that is never clearly accounted for, the same scientists are brought back to flesh and blood, earthly bodies, and local places. This is a nice example I found writing this lecture here. This is in Cambridge, here in 18. In 1997, at the old Cavendish laboratory, Gigi Thomson discovered the electron, subsequently recognized as the first fundamental particle of physics and the basis of chemical bonding, electronic, and computing. So it's very local. And of course, very quickly, in another version of physics, physics is supposed to be everywhere. The two versions, the local and the universal, are just as irreconcilable as are the many advertisements that hype the uploading of your data into the cold, ethereal cloud. This is, when you think about the cloud, you never think of that, which is the real computers that actually make the cloud cloud. While carefully hiding the areas of power stations that must be built down enough to cool the vast areas of server farms, always at risk of hover-eating. No doubt it is such a discrepancy between the two views, that has made science since at least the 17th century so difficult to assimilate inside the general culture. And that has rendered so many scientists morally naive, as well as politically important. If for the people of nature, the two views seems irreconcilable, for the people of Gaia, that is not the case. Here again, climate science has introduced an epochal change offering us, I think, in science today, a pretty clear-cut golden spike. When, for instance, Charles D. Keeling has to defend his long-term data series on the daily, monthly, yearly rhythm of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it would make no sense at all for him not to foreground the instrumentation with which he has worked for 40 years on the Mauna Loa volcano in Hawaii. If we had to fight so long against government agency, against the National Science Foundation itself, against the oil lobbies, it was to save this instrument and the data they produced. Without them, it would have been impossible for the rest of this community to detect the fast pace with which carbon dioxide was accumulating in the atmosphere. To talk about the climate objectively and to deploy what Paul Edwards called the vast machine activating the political of global warming, are one and the same thing. Or to use his term, it's the same movement that creates an epistemic culture and the knowledge infrastructure that goes with it. The more climate skeptics insist on the old idea of a science floating everywhere at no cost, the more climatologists are in turn forced to insist on this foregrounding, and the more they see themselves as specific people with a specific interest lock into conflicts with other people for the production of relevant data series. Am I right in thinking that for the first time in the history of science, the very visibility of their network may at last make scientists wholly credible? Precisely because they are viciously attacked in the name of epistemology, they must for the first time fall back on the concrete institution of science as their own way to access objective truth. Perhaps they will accept at last that the more situated the knowledge, the sturdier it becomes. Instead of alternating wildly between an impossible universality and the narrow confines of their limited standpoint, it's because they extend their data set, instrument after instrument, pixel after pixel, data point after data point, that they might have a chance to compose universality and to pay its price tag in full. If this composition point is so crucial, it's because we might find in climatology, not like Gaia scientia anticipated by Nietzsche, but the Gaia science that would at last be compatible with the anthropology, the politics, and maybe the theology we are striving for. Is it not extraordinary to learn from natural sciences that we seem to have moved backward through some sort of counter-Copernican revolution to a sublunary world whose functioning are largely disconnected from the rest of nature? But the reason why we are not dragged back to a time before Copernicus is because another image of the world has also been smashed, an image that has retained remain intact for the whole of philosophy, the idea of a sphere that would allow anyone to think globally and to carry over one shoulder the whole weight of the globe. This strange obsession, this, the true white man's burden. In other words, we have to lift what could be called atlas malediction. To lift this extra weight from our shoulder, we have to indulge into a little bit of spherology, this fascinating discipline invented from scratch by Peter Sloterdijk in his massive three-volume study of the envelopes, indispensable for the furthering of life. Sloterdijk has generalized von Uxul Umwelt to all the bubbles that agency have generated to make a difference between inside and the outside. Sloterdijk is a thinker that takes metaphor very seriously and fully probes their real weight. According to Sloterdijk, the complete oddity of Western philosophy, science, theology, and politics is to have invested all its virtue into the figure of a globe without paying the slightest attention to how it could be built, sustained, maintained, and inhabited. The globe is supposed to capture everything that is true and beautiful, even though it's an architectonic impossibility that will crumble as soon as you look seriously at how and where it does stand. Sloterdijk asks a very simple, humble architectural question, one that is just as material as the geologist with their inquisitive hammer. Where do you reside when you say, that you have a global view of the universe? How are you protected from annihilation? What do you see? Which air do you breathe? How are warm, clothed, and fed? And if you cannot fulfill those basic requirements of life, how is it that you still claim to talk about anything that is true and beautiful, or that you occupy some higher, moral ground? Without specifying their climatology, the values you try to defend are probably long dead already, like plants that have been kept inside greenhouse overexposed to the sun. In Slutterdecks, even more than in Lovelock's hand, the notion of homeostasis and climate control take on an even more metaphysical dimension. Any thought, any concept, any project that ends up ignoring the necessity of a fragile envelope that makes existence possible is, for him, a contradiction in terminus. Regretfully, tonight, I will make use use of only one of the results of this marvelous inquiry, a result, however, that goes to the heart of our political theology of nature. In the middle of his second volume, he is a German philosopher, so his books are pretty thick, (laughs) Sloterdijk devotes a 100 pages to a meditation that he titles Deus Sive Sphairai. God, that is, the sphere. Although it could seem to be just a t- tiny technical fault in design, it's one that destabilized the whole architectonic of Western cosmology, and that is most clearly detectable in visu- visual imageries such as these. As you can see, the little chink that is, is the first, as I see, to point out result from an unresolved bifocalism of a Christian imagery that tries to superimpose its incoherent theocentric and geocentric growth. It just so happened that when you place God in the center, the Earth is rejected as a periphery. This is fine, since it gives our planet a humble and well <laughs> peripheral role. But the point is that when you place the Earth at the center, with hell locked smack in the middle, beneath a sublunary word, it's God that is forced to occupy the periphery. That move is harder to swallow. God is not supposed to be peripheral. How could you build a whole cosmology with two contradictory centers, one turning around God, while the other is circling around the Earth? But the real fascinating thing is that for about two millennia, this little architectonic fault made no difference whatsoever to theologian, artists, mystics, and poets. As Sloterdijk mentioned, this is, I quote, the bifocalism of the image of the world had to be kept latent without the possibility of having any explicit dialogue about the complete contradiction between the geocentric site and the theocentric site of a projection inside what he called the illusory bubble of Philosophia Perennis. So powerful is the illusory bubble of the Philosophia Perennis, the malediction of the globe, that theologians have drawn a cosmic god in the form of two warbling spheres without ever being alerted to its technical implausibility. From Dante to Nicolas de Couz, from Robert Flood to Anastasius Kircher, all the way to modern illustrator, the discrepancy was simultaneously obvious and constantly denied. Although it was visually impossible, the smooth emanation from God's grace to human Earth was never put into question, even though no one could literally draw its mystical ray in continuous line through the yawning gap between the two systems. You could object, I'm sure, by asking why we should pay any attention to this discrepancy in Christian theology. I'm sorry to say here that coherence is not the forte of religious soul. But what fascinates me in this discovery is that exactly the same incoherence applies to the architectonic view with which rationality has been built. The two images of the world in Christian theology are just as irreconcilable as the image that would represent, for instance, the physics of the electron as simultaneously everywhere in the world and safely located inside J.J. Thomson Cavendish Laboratory. And you find exactly the same denial of such an impossibility, not this time among theologians and mystics, but among scientists and philosophers. The illusory bubble of Philosophia Perennis keep latent the complete contradiction between nature one, cosmocentric, and nature two, centric, making any explicit dialogue between the two exactly as impossible than in medieval cosmology. Following Sloterdijk's probing of the architecture of reason, we realize that the globe is not what the world is made of, but the Platonic obsession transported into Christian theology, and then loaded into political epistemology to provide a figure, but an impossible one, for the dream of total and complete knowledge. There is a strange fatality at work here. Whenever you think of knowledge in a zero-gravity space, and this is where epistemologists dream of residing, inevitably it takes the shape of a transparent sphere that could be expected from a place of no place by a body of nobody, just like Captain Adock Whiskey on board the spaceship designated by Professor Calculus in R.G. Explorer of the Moon, takes on a golden spherical shape as soon as Thompson and Thompson stupidly cut its artificial gravity. But once you restore the gravitational field, knowledge immediately lo- loses mystical spherical shape inherited from Platonist philosophy and Christian theology. Data flow again in their original form. Because of this bifocalism, the two portraits of Atlas are equally implausible, Sloterdijk argues. The Atlas who is supposed to hold the world on his shoulder, but also the one invented by Mercator, the very emblem of a scientific revolution, an Atlas who is supposed to hold the entire cosmos in his hands as if it were a football. Mercator, having fused the male scientist with the much older metaphors of God's hand, morphed him into a giant, a real superman, able to keep everything in his pole. But if a globe is indeed held for good in the hand of some average sized human, then inevitably, it's a map, a model, a globe, in the very humble and local sense of a little instrument of papier-mâché that many of you, I'm sure, love to make world round your hand. Or else it's one of those contraptions that Patrick Geddes and Élisée Reclus invented so as to give a popular shape to the encyclopedic knowledge they had accumulated. To lift the fatality of the globe, what I've called Atlas malediction, one has to stick to good old science study or to Sloterdijk philosophy and point out that global, is an adjective that might describe the shape of a local contraption to be inspected by a group of humans gazing at it, but never the cosmos itself, inside which everything is supposed to be enclosed. It can also be like here, a global sphere which is above our head, but it's an architectural space. No matter how large it is, the array of the clusters of a galaxy dispersed since the Big Bang is no bigger than the screen on which the stream of data from the Hubble telescope are being pixelized and color. The reason why this relocalization of a global has become so important, it's because the Earth itself might not be a globe, after all. When we unify it as the Terraqueo sphere, we are forcing geostory inside the older format of medieval theology and 19th century epistemology of nature. Even the famous view of a blue planet might end up being a composite image. That is, an image composed of the old shape given to the Christian god and of a complex network of data acquisition from NASA that was, in turn, projected inside the distributed panorama of the media. Here is actually the source of a fascination that the image of a sphere has exerted from Plato to NATO. The spherical shape smooths down knowledge into one continuous, complete, transparent, ubiquitous volume that hides the extraordinarily difficult task of assembling controversial data points coming from many different instruments and disciplines. A sphere has no history, no beginning, no end, no whole, no discontinuity of any sort. It's not only an idea. It's the very ideal of ideas. It's what you wish to passively contemplate when you are tired of history. And thus, it's precisely that inside which you don't want to be imprisoned to tell a geostory. For this, as you, we saw yesterday, you need data in the original form of narrative. What can be articulated in a geostory? No political theology is possible as long as we don't extract ourselves from Atlas' malediction. Orbis terrarum sive sfera sive Deus sive natura. Such is the last point I want to make as this lecture near its end. The notion of a globe and any global thinking entail the immense danger of unifying too fast what should be composed instead. The spherical globe hides the activity needed to draw its shape, since in order to design a circle, you need to come back to your departure point by following some sort of a loop. The concept of a loop should take precedence over that of a sphere. It's the only way to become secular in science as well as in theology. Of course, the point is at first simply geometrical. You need to draw a circle before being able to generate a sphere. It's, of course, also historical. It's only because Magellan's ship returned that his contemporaries could engrave deeper in their mind the image of a spherical Earth. But it's also more. It's only when you feel that your action is coming back to you that you sense that you are made responsible for it. Thus, the loop that is necessary to draw any sphere is pragmatic in John Dewey's sense of the word. You need to feel the consequence of your action before being able to represent yourself as having an action and realize that the word is like that resisted it. As Sloterdijk pointed out, it's only once humans see pollution coming back at them that they begin to really feel that the Earth is indeed round. Or rather, this roundedness of the Earth, knows, known from oldest antiquity, but superficially gains more and more plausibility as there is growing numbers of loops by which it's possible to encircle it. This is the reason why it's so crucial to shift from the globe to the loops that slowly draw it. Without child-killing Monalo observatory and the instrument to detect the carbon dioxide cycle, we would know less. I mean, we would feel less strongly that the Earth might be rounded by our own action. And before that, we had to feel the hole in the ozone layer, thanks to Dobson's instrument, to feel the possibility of a nuclear winter thanks to the new models of atmospheric circulation promoted by Carl Sagan and his colleagues. That's what the Anthropocene is all about. It's not that suddenly the tiny human mind should be transported into a global sphere that would anyway be much too big for his or her tiny scale. It's instead that we have to weave ourselves, to cocoon ourselves within a great many loops so that progressively, thread after thread, the knowledge of where we reside and on what we depend for our atmospheric condition can gain greater relevance and feel more urgent. This slow operation of being wrapped in successive looping strings is what it means to be of this Earth. And it has nothing to do with being human in nature or human on the globe. It's rather a slow and painful progressive merging of cognitive, emotional, and aesthetic virtue because of the way the loops are rendered more and more visible through instruments and art forms of all sorts. Through each loop, we become more sensitive and more responsive to the fragile envelopes we inhabit. How many loops do we have to circle around the Earth before the knowledge gains enough of a transient feel for this shapeless anthropos to become a real agency? How many loops had to encircle some of you before you stopped smoking? You might know all along that cigarettes cause lung cancer, but it's a very long moment before you actually smoking. Here, too, you need complex institution and well-endowed health bureaucracy to feel the consequence of the action on yourself and on the others in this case. How many loops do you need to feel the rotundity of the Earth for good? How many more institutions, how many more bureaucracy do you need, you personally, here tonight? to feel that you're really responsible for something so far away as the chemical composition of the atmosphere. It's actually interesting to see that the same lobbies who feed sceptics have also fed before, uh, criticize the connection between cigarettes and cancer. But there is another final and a more cogent reason why we should be extremely suspicious of any global view, a point we have reversed we hear often enough. Gaia is not a sphere at all. If anything, Gaia is a tiny membrane no more than a few kilometers thick. So it's not global in the sense of being run as a system from any control room by some overarching and overpowering super dispatcher. As we saw last Thursday, Gaia is not made of loops in the cybernetic sense of a metaphor but in the sense of historical events expanding further or not, depending on what the other agencies are doing with their own final causes. This means that to understand the entanglement of a contradictory and conflicting connection among events is not a job that can be done by jumping suddenly to a higher global level to see them all acting as one single whole. It can only be accomplished by crisscrossing their potential path with as many instruments as possible to have a chance of detecting in what way they are connected. Once again, the global, the universal, and the natural act as so many dangerous poison that obscure the difficulty and the cost of laying down the networks of equipment that render the consequences of action visible to all the values agencies than do the acting. This seems to me the real meaning of what it is to live in the Anthropocene. Sensitivity is a term that applies to all the agencies able to spread the loops further and to feel the consequences of what they do come back to haunt them. When the dictionary defines sensitive as being quick to detect or respond to slight changes, signal, or influence, this adjective applies to Gaia as well as to the Anthropos, but only as far that it's fully equipped with enough sensors to feel the feedback. Of Gaia, Isabel Stenger often says that it has become ticklish. Nature, the nature of olden days, might have been indifferent, overpowering a cruel stepmother, but for sure it was not ticklish. Its complete lack of sensitivity was, on the contrary, the source of thousands of poems, and what allowed her to trigger, by contrast, the feeling of a sublime. We humans were sensitive, responsible, and highly moral. Not her. Gaia, however, seems to be overly sensitive to our action. And it appears to react incredibly fast to what it feels and detects. This is why we should become cautious, careful. Yes, sensitive in return. No immunology is possible without high sensitivity to those multiple controversial tangled loops. Those who are not quick to detect or to respond to the slight changes are doomed. And those who, for some reason, interrupt, erase, background, diminish, weaken, deny, obscure, underfund or disconnect any of those loops are not only insensitive and unresponsive, they are simply criminal. This is why there is some reason to call negationists, those who, having denied Gaia sensitivity, listen to the call of a devil, that Faustian character who says, I'm the spirit of always saying no. No doubt that this is one of the sources from which evil has come. I will conclude with one possible reading of a crashing planet at the end of Lars von Trier, Melancholia. It might not be the Earth that is being destroyed in one last sublime flash of apocalypse by an errant planet. It is our globe, our ideal idea of a globe, that should be destroyed for any work of art, any aesthetic to emerge. If you agree to hear in the word aesthetic its old meaning of being able to perceive and to be concerned, that is, a capacity to render oneself sensitive, a capacity that precedes any distinction between the instrument of science, of art, and politics. In one of his many linguistic innovations, Stotterdijk has proposed to say, that we should shift from an obsession with monotheism with another obsession with the shape of a globe to monogeism. Monogéisme, not to be confused with monogenist, which is another, are those who have no spare planet, who have only one Earth, but who don't know its shape better than they knew the face of their god of old. And we are thus confronted with what could be called a totally new kind of geopolitical, geopolitical theology. Thank you very much.
0: Um, we're grateful to Professor Latour for another very thought-provoking and stimulating lecture. Um, we'll pause just for a moment uh, while those who have to get away at this time uh, leave, uh, and then there'll be an opportunity for questions and discussion
2: with Professor Latour. Thank you very much for that lecture. Uh, very good, especially given the technological problems you've faced. Um, I'm really interested in what you're talking about. In, I don't think you used these, these words, but in my mind it was summed up as feedback loops. You're talking about shortening the feedback loops. Feedback, b- uh-huh. Between the capacity for action and feeling kind of responsibility for our actions. I wondered if you'd any ideas about how that might be done as we face, you know, collectively, environmental challenges. Um, I'm thinking of example, I'm a geographer. Uh-huh. Sorry, you said to introduce myself. I'm from the geography department at Durham University. Um, and there's a lot of work in about governance around, say, the use of community is helping to shorten those feedback loops. Um, there's also Islamic environmental theologians who talk about the role of the Ummah and feeling connected to distant others. Um, but did you have any ideas about ways in which those loops might be fostered and
1: generated? Well, geography, as you know, is a big department that we created the last lectures, ahead head of... A- University of Edinburgh is a huge geography department inside which all the other disciplines are now located. Well, the the loop's feedback is a term which is nice, but it has an inconvenient, as I showed Thursday, to link to cybernetic, and then immediately to get the idea of a whole, I mean, a sort of control and a technical metaphor for the whole Earth. And Lovelock has often been accused of of, of this. So I try to uh, to shift the loop out of the notion of uh, feedback mechanism in the cybernetic sense to avoid the metaphor of spaceship Earth, which is often the metaphor which is used. And of course, the problem of spaceship Earth is where is the base out of which the spaceship, where is the Houston. So uh, loop. And on Thursday, I think I proposed a solution to your question, really, which is to try to connect the notion of loop with the notion of, planetary boundary, which is another of these notions invented by the Stiefen and Kutzen and the others, and also, maybe more controversially, with um, the, the notion of lines in uh, Schmitt's argument of politics. So I will try to superimpose these different definitions on loops, but out of a feedback mechanism, Schmidt's notion of lights, lines and boundaries. <laughs> it's a tricky uh, thing to do. But it goes somewhere toward your question, which is, it's not by going to the, to the globe, for a reason I've just said, it's by multiplying the numbers of, of ways in which we feel the, uh, the feedback, uh, the notion of feedback is excellent. Uh, and of course, artists are as important there as scientists, moralists and whoever is making these loops visible. And as soon as these loops are interrupted, we lose the sensitivity to connect. So a lot lot of ecology has been around this notion of connection, but very little has been put in actually making the connection and and paying the political price, so to speak, of those connections. That's what I'm interested in doing. So I think on Thursday, Mm -hmm. I, I will at least propose a solution to your question. Question
0: from the third front row, in fact two from the same row, here
2: we are. Hi, I'm Ruth Mason, also from Durham University. Um, I'm interested in this um, concept of sensitivity to... Which uh, content? The concept of sensitivity to yeah. detect. And I think it was your second lecture when you began to talk about a definition of rationality as a process of being or becoming attuned. Um, and I'm just interested to hear more about what this might start to mean for our uh, sort of understanding of rationality.
1: Well, as I said, the rationality is not to hear one tune, it's to be able to listen to several different tunes. And that's where I use, uh, in the old debate between religion and science, the problem that there's supposed to be in Hume, least is, dialogue, only one tune, which is is it an information about some faraway uh, state of affair. And there is another tune which is often forgotten when people talk about religion, which is a way of talking not about far away, but about close at hand. So that's what I meant by uh, the, the right becoming sensitive to different tones. Here, what I'm trying to uh, use this word sensitivity is this double aesthetic argument, which is the aesthetic in the sense of a science giving us the instrument to make us sensitive to what happens on the earth. And it's a unique situation, because absolutely none of it is understandable without going to the sciences. And yet the sciences are not in the, posi- in the position where they were, at the time where authority and uh, nature one, so to speak, uh, was uh, able to register, I mean to obtain assent. So we are in the paradoxical situation of having not one single of this issue about ecology is without the science. We have to go for science, but the science is not there as a final authority. So it is disputed and indispensable. And I think it's largely a new situation. Uh, And it's about things which are outside, which are not laboratory constrained, which is another of this strange peculiarity. And there are lots of uh, scientists are viciously attacked by others in the name of science. So that's the first aesthetic the one of science. And then there's the other aesthetic, which is the one mostly associated with the art in the much larger sense, Jewish sense of the word, which is render us sensitive also. So this is another way of answering the first question. It's actually uh, what I think everybody is struggling around this notion of art and ecology and morality and ecology are all struggling to the same thing. How to render us sensitive to something for which there is no scale. None of us has the emotive and psychological equipment to take the burden on our shoulder of the Earth. We are not St. Christopher. And when, actually, when we were St. Christopher, St. Christopher almost drowned. So it's a bad sign. Right? So if we are St. Christopher, we have the St. Christopher who drowns. So the, the whole problem of, of this multi, multiplying the aesthetic in the sense of multiplying the source of sensitivity to this feedback, is, I think, a large part of what many, many people do in religious study and ecology, art and ecology, and, of course, science and ecology. So sensitivity becomes a a nice word, because it's the sensitivity of equipment, like uh, Keeling's beautiful, uh, absolutely beautiful paper. The paper by Keeling is one of the best science studies paper, and is produced by Keeling himself. I mean, it shows the reflexivity of all scientists, viciously attacked by the NSF for wanting to maintain this equipment for 40 years. And the paper is one of the best, uh, most moving paper about scientists wishing, of this new breed of scientists, wishing to maintain the sensitivity of an instrument.
0: Question from across the passageway? Behind your loop? No. In that case, Michael Northcott is next in the queue.
3: Thank you. Um, again, wonderful, stimulating lecture. Um, for, I'm a theologian, so I'm in the School of Divinity here. So when I think about the claim we are in a new era because of a human event, for me this sounds almost blasphemous. It was a, a blasphemous because the, the idea of the Anthropocene because if there is one, if there is an Anthropocene, in other words, if, if if there is a new era inaugurated by a human being, in Christian theology it seems to me that new era will be better described as the Christocene. In other words, something happens in the relationship between God, humans, and the earth, in the in the incarnation of the Creator, which which brings into being a new set of possibilities about the unfolding of life being the earth. And St. Paul, for example, says in Romans 8, this this unfolding will be about reducing the suffering of creation, reducing its frustration. I think there are arguably moments in Christian history, even maybe right up to Francis Bacon, where we could say that was the motive for scientific endeavor, the discoveries, the the, the many technological discoveries of the monks, for example, windmills, clocks, deep, the plow, these were all about reducing pain and suffering and making the creation more fertile. They also made the creation uh, more fertile. But then, when I actually think about the the moral implications of the uh, 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 Christocene, and how we might judge that morally, politically, in, in the round, then I think of the great metaphor of the Last Judgment, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew. It's a very pantocratic, global kind of Christian image for the sort of parliamentary council of being that you are also working towards in this and other texts. But the, the really interesting thing is in that Last Judgment parable, it's sensitivity to suffering which distinguishes the sheep from the goats. So the people who acknowledge, in your metaphor, some sense of, of connection or loop with those who suffer and seek to alleviate it are those who are, are going with the direction of the Christocene. Uh, and I just, for, for me, this, that, there's something in that uh, in relation to sensitivity to climate science. In other words, do I acknowledge it? Do I change my life? Do I do something different than emit all these um, emissions, uh, because what, what might motivate that? Uh, a, a colleague in Edinburgh did, um, in geography, not in theology, did an empirical study of people who engage in low-carbon behaviours. And what she found was, these were, they, they were not motivated by love of nature, or love of the globe, or love of Gaia. That almost universally in her, her stu- the empirical study she did, she found they were motivated by a concern for the suffering of people who will suffer because of extreme climate change and who are already suffering. So in the Christocene, sensitivity to the climate is very much in line with this parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a sensitivity to the suffering of others and a willingness then to respond to climate science by reducing our impacts on the earth and the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> the word blasphemous I uh, have difficulty with? The word? Blasphemous. Oh, yes. <coughs> because um, I mean, I sort of agree. Uh, on the other hand, the, 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 the track record of, of Christian theology as far as making this. Publicly visible in uh, ecology is not immensely uh, good, so to speak. So the the same problem we we have the same problem again, which is the scale, the size of a connection between the Earth being literally concerned by our action and not symbolically concerned by our action makes a big difference. Of course, you can say, and I agree entirely with the argument, but it has always been part of a Christian tradition to have this uh, sort of creation-centric view and not human-centric view, which is, I mean, a large part of orthodox theology is all about that, but the point is that it's about a symbolic definition of what it is to be on the earth. The, the change of scale, which I think is now visible through the notion of the Anthropocene, and I, I resent the word blasphemous, because I think it will, it, it in a way, show the insensit. It could show not in your case, but it could sound. The, again, the, the in, lack of sensitivity to the difference in scale and the shift from symbolic to literal. So to, to be symbolically, to make a symbolic ritual. I mean, in, in Catholic Church, for instance, we have this tradition of the hogation. I don't know if this exists in Anglican Church. Of course, it's very beautiful. You, you bring the wheat and all of the crops inside the reflection of it. But it, it is a symbolic benediction. In which way does it help to recapture the strength of the instrument like killing's instrument is not clear to me. And I think in your work, as well as in what I'm trying to attempt, the idea is precisely how do we give to this to what used to be a symbolic version of a loop and the sensitivity, a literal meaning, which means, of course, taking politics seriously and the size of the a, of a issue seriously. So I agree with what you say apart from the word blasphemous.
0: I think we'll take one more uh, contribution. The man at the back there had his hand up first. Second row from the back.
4: Thank you, Professor Turov. Uh, I was thinking uh, during the lecture back to your first couple of lectures where you talked about translation, about of, what? De- about translation yeah. of deities. Keep
0: that up to your mouth.
4: Thank and uh, is that a little better for you? Yeah. Um, and I wondered uh, you know, what would happen when the missionaries of the people of Gaia uh, came to the people of nature and told them uh, that, uh, about Gaia and, and, and her wonders. And the people of nature would say to them, Okay, we know about this, but we have a different name for it. We call it the biosphere. But it's not the deity, it's in fact a subset of, of nature, and furthermore, a vanishingly small subset of nature, a tiny, thin film in the great universe of nature, and a sentiment which the missionaries of Gaia would find, I have no doubt, extremely offensive. Um, so who would be offended? The, the people of the missionaries of Gaia would be offended by the idea that, 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 that Gaia uh, which the people of nature call biosphere was a tiny subset of the great deity of, of nature. It wasn't. It wasn't the deity at all. It wasn't a deus at all. It was just a tiny uh, expression uh, of uh, of nature. How would the missionaries of Gaia explain to the people of nature what is the difference between Gaia in all her glory and this little division that they call the biosphere?
1: Gods are always misinterpreted. So I mean. We are here among theologians, we know that pre- pretty well. So, there's no way to do that well. I mean, it's necessarily a misunderstanding. The translation table I introduced the first lecture was precisely to sh- try to shift the discussion of the fight from uh, a belief to um, these three, I mean, as a very free, very rudimentary tools. Nomos, Theos, and demos, and say, okay, before we fight and we cut each other's uh, throat, uh, let's try to imagine. My, my metaphor is what used to—I mean, it's a dangerous metaphor—but uh, at the beginning of Reformation, there was what called "peace of religion," which was a highly elaborated protocol before. Uh, I'm sorry, to say, Protestant and Catholic cut each other's throat. Okay. But there was, there was before the, the on-out war, there was peace of religion, which was a highly elaborated discussion in order to determine how the, the, the weight of these different uh, people, so to speak, uh, were concerned. So in my view, what is missing from all this discussion, like the one we just had, about the literal of a symbolic na- nature uh, of those ecological fight is the definition of a people. I mean, what is the exact definition of the people? Is it all the scientists? Is it some scientists? Is it non-scientists? Is it the whole humanity? Is it the humanity of, who are educated? I mean, who, who, tell whom? What is the people who is actually summoned? And then what's the entity which is summoned it? If you tell me it's nature, so it's not a god, I want to see the proof of that. As I showed in the lectures, I mean, this nature, nature one, does a lot of things that look a lot like a god. So, Gaia is not there as a surprising non nature. It is surprising, yeah. And then, what is the distribution of agencies? So, there's no general, I mean, (laughs) this is a thought experiment. My argument, which I tried to develop in the two last lectures, is that it's better, its peace is more possible to imagine once we have this condition of war clearly precise. So yes, it will shock sometimes. But I I thought you would say the people of nature will be much more shocked by being addressed as a people. But see, that's already the case. The climatologists are immensely shocked to be accused of being a lobby by the uh, the climate deniers. They say, no, no, we are not a lobby. We are just scientists. And the other says, no, no, (laughs) yes, you are scientists, but you are just a lobby. And the word lobby comes as a complete surprise to those who imagine imagined they were of no people. OK, so now let's, let's go on in the rooting of this. Let's have you people root and then let's clearly say, who is summoning you? What is the cosmos in which you inhabit? We will disagree, but it's much better than to be in the situation of false peace in which we are when we say, let's all be scientists, and we'll agree. We know that it's not the case. There's not one single case of ecology which is not a dispute. So this is the direction in which I will go, but there is no <laughs> definitive answer to your very nice question. I mean, it's, we will see, but it will be a nice game, and we could play if we had more time. <laughs> present yourself. Present yourself as the people of Gaia without being shot in a minute. <laughs> a sort of television series, you know? How long can you stand?. <laughs>
0: Uh, Sadly, we have no more time this evening, but Professor Latour's lectures will continue again tomorrow at 5.30. Before we finish this evening, we thank him again, not only for a very fine lecture, but also for his willingness to engage in conversation with us. Thank you, Professor Latour.
2: This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.